You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Citizens Church. My name is Joey. I am one of the pastors here, and we have been going through a study in the book of Psalms here for a while called Songs of the Messiah. And uh, this is like the easiest sermon series to preach ever because uh, every, every psalm is about Jesus. So I just, you know, all I have to do is put my finger in the book, and it's like, yeah, it's about Jesus. So that's what we're doing today is we are looking for Jesus in Psalm chapter 19. And I want to jump right into it because we have a lot to cover. There's three things that I want us to see that I think we're going to see as we make our way through Psalm 19, and it's this one, that we are taught something by the heavens. The heavens, the sky above, teach us something. Secondly, we are to be transformed by the word. And thirdly, we are to trust in the gospel. So that's what today is all about. That's what Psalm 19 is encouraging us to invite into our life, to be taught by the heavens, to be transformed by the words, the word, and to trust in the gospel. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to jump into it and be encouraged by this song today. Father, be with us in this time together. Please open our hearts Please open our minds to understand your word and crave your word, your truth, Lord. I pray that it would hit us where it needs to hit, Lord, that it would uh, convict us, that it would inspire us, that it would give us a grander, bigger vision of you and who you are and what you're about in our life and what you're trying to do. God, I pray that, um, that this word would not return void, that it would propel us forward into greater faithfulness, into more intense love for you, into uh, more... Um, to greater, a greater following of you, Lord. I pray that you do the, that in us this morning. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen. All right, Psalm 19. First thing we're going to see is that we are taught something by the heavens. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Don did a great job reading verses 1 through 6. But when you read verses 1 through 6 uh, in Psalm chapter 19, uh, you read his meditation, David's meditation on the heavens. It's a little bit unrelatable, isn't it? I mean, he's like, he's combusting in, in this joy over the sky above and the heavens above. And it's a little bit unrelatable to us to get excited about this, but here's what God likes to do. God likes to, in his genius, right, how he's created things, he likes to use tangible, visceral things, unavoidable, obvious things. He likes to put those things in place in our reality because they teach us spiritual things, Tangible things that God has embedded in our reality point to something beyond themselves, point to a spiritual truth. And so that's what David is, is excited about here, is what the heavens teach us about God and His ways and our life with Him. So here's the first concept that, that, that verses 1 through 6 tell us. The first concept is this, the heavens are fixed in place by God. The heavens are fixed in place by God, and you'll notice that uh, uh, David says things like, the heavens declare, and the heavens proclaim, the heavens pour out speech, they reveal knowledge, its voice is heard in all the earth to the end of the world. The point is, that David is making, is that the heavens, they testify to something. They're, they're giving an argument for something. What are, they, what are they arguing? What are they testifying to? What are the heavens trying to teach us? Well, verse 1 says this, the sky above proclaims your handiwork. Handiwork. Now, handiwork, that's, that is um, 
thread language, sewing language. Okay, Psalm, Psalm 8 says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So God has set the, the cosmos above us in place, the stars, the moon, all these things. He set them in place how? The imagery is that he's threaded them together. Psalm 102, this is really important. This kind of sets this uh, uh, imagery really in a strong way. Psalm 102 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. When Jesus returns one day, they will perish, but you will remain. Listen here. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. So even David later on in Psalm 102 says that when you look above, we're to understand that the the infinite universe, the infinite galaxies, and all the stars to the very composition of our atmosphere, everything from top to bottom above our heads, it's been threaded together by God skillfully, creatively. With his capacity and genius and power, he has fixed the heavens in place. So in summary, what do the heavens teach us? It teaches us that God is capable, that God is skilled, that God has purposes, that God has a plan. He sets it in place uh, um, with his very hands. Concept number two, though, what what also do the heavens teach us? What else do we see? The concept number two is that the sun's pattern, the sun's pattern is determined by God. Look at verses four and five. In them, in the heavens, the sky above. He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course. Now, the Hebrew, when you read Hebrew poetry, when you read the Psalms, oftentimes one line and the next will have this mutually dynamic relationship with with the other. It's like supposed to be mutually enlightening. We're supposed to get this grand one idea from these lines that interact with each other. And so when you come to this, it seems like he's saying the sun, a, a, a metaphor to understand the sun when it rises, is it's like a groom on his wedding day when he gets out of bed. Or it's like a runner that is, that, is, that is taking his or her place at the beginning before the gun goes off. And so what do these things have in common? What does a groom on his wedding day and a runner at his mark, what do those two um, images have in common? Because that's what we're supposed to see. That's, what, that's what's going on here. They're, supposed to, they're communicating something, conveying something. And what is it? The point is that when the groom awakes the morning of his wedding day, and the runner at the moment when the official says, runners to your mark, they're both coursing with anticipation. They're coursing with thrill. Why? Why is that? Because the morning of a wedding and the beginning of a race are loaded with potential, loaded with anticipation, loaded with the thrill at what is to come. There is anticipation and thrill at the prospect of what is ahead. And when the sun breaks over the hills and lights up the sky, it's like a groom that wakes up on his wedding day just beaming with excitement or a runner just taking off when the gun goes off. The point of this imagery, the point of the metaphor is that the sun's dawning should communicate to us that every day is loaded with potential. Every day is just coursing with anticipation and thrill of what is to come. Every day, every day 
is a new day with its own potential, its own greatness. It's like a wedding day all over again. It's like a great quest, a great game all over again every single day. And then verse 6 says this about the sun. It says, It's rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And I'm not going to say as much about this verse, but this verse is very important. This verse is very important because here's what it means. The sun will rise and the sun will set. The sun will start at one end of the expanse and make its way throughout the day above us and end at the other. That will happen. What, this is, what verse 6 is saying is there is a predictability. There is a sustainability. There is a promise that the sun will rise and the sun will set. So we stand back at these verses, okay? We ask ourselves, what, is the, what are the heavens teaching us? You know, the sky can teach us a great deal. Everyone in here uh, falls into two categories. You either uh, wake up and you're a cynic. And you look at your day and you think, oh, I have to trudge through this. I have to go to work, my monotonous, boring job, the things I don't love. I have to do this. I have to do this. And there's going to be this nuisance and there's going to be this obstacle. Some of us are in that bucket. And some of us are in this other bucket where we're just anxious and we're just working and we're just striving. We're trying to achieve and we're always thinking about the future, trying to seize what is in the future and bring it into today. You either trudge through the day or you're absent throughout the day because your mind is not in the present. You're not actually uh, um, available here and now. You're just you're, you're somewhere beyond us. You either trudge through the day or you're absent throughout the day, and the sky teaches each one of us something very particular. For those who trudge through the day, what does David say about the sun? The sun's rising is like a groom on his wedding day or like a runner at his mark. Each day is bursting with potential. Each day is a celebration. Each day is a journey. Each day is a game. And God is the one who instituted this. God is the one who makes, who set the sun in its place with its course, with its, it's going to rise, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall. God is the one who does these things to teach us that each day is its own. It's not yesterday. Yesterday is gone. His mercies are new every morning and every day is a new start. And so when you embrace what God is teaching us through the heavens, it changes everything. If you trudge the day, because you look at those nuisances and those obstacles that you know are coming your way, those nuisances, like people, people, are not, people don't become a bothersome thing. People become an opportunity. People are not annoying. People are, are, are in their own way profound. Every day introduces to you a new opportunity, new people, new conversations. Think about traffic. You're looking at your day and just, that's not, that doesn't have to be boredom. doesn't have to go to waste. Each day is a new opportunity. And so there's something there. Every failure, every failure that's coming your day is a lesson. Every success, it's a gift to be relished. Every day is a new beginning. And so we don't trudge the day. We're not pessimistic and cynical about the day when the sun rises it teaches us like a groom, like a runner at his mark, there's something ahead of us, something grand, something to be had here. But then there's some of us here too who fall in the other bucket, which is that we're not present. We're absent throughout the day because we're just so consumed and we're so busy and we're so preoccupied. And this is me, okay? This is where I fall. This is why I, the one I relate to. And so I don't know about you, but I obsess over the future, 
I obsess over all of the different options that that could be. I obsess all about, about uh, um, all the different possibilities that there could be. I want the future wrapped in a bow now. I want the uncertain figured out. I do not do well waiting. I do not do well letting God bring things about in his timing. I am always trying to reach into the future, get guarantee, get certainty, and bring it into the present. What the heavens tell us is this. Remember, God is capable. He has woven together the cosmos and the stars and the sky above us. He has done that. He is capable. His plans work. His plans are genius. He is trustworthy. And so what this means is you, if you are busy and consumed and just trying to seize the future, stop. You can rest. You can take a break. You can pause. You don't need what is ahead now. You can be present in the present. And I promise you, based on Psalm 19, the world will keep spinning. Things will not fall apart. You are not that essential. I am not that essential to our lives working out. God has a plan. God is capable. If you press pause, don't worry. The world will keep on spinning, so take a break. You are not going to seize the future by worrying today, but you will miss out on today by obsessing over the future. What is to come, it will come. Be present today. I was thinking about uh, what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6 as I was preparing this sermon, and it kind of made sense to me now why Jesus tells us, look at the lilies of the field. They don't clothe themselves, yet not even Solomon was dressed like one of these. He says, look at the birds. They don't care about where the food's coming from. They know that it's going to be presented before them. What, what is Jesus telling us to do there? Don't be anxious. Look at the created order. Look at what God has embedded and instituted in the fabric of our world. The world will keep spinning. It is okay. Do not be anxious. I also thought, too, about Genesis 1. See, we, okay, all of us here think that our days begin, the day begins when we wake up. And it concludes when we put our head in the pillow at night and we go to bed. That's not biblical, actually. Because Genesis 1 says that there was evening and then there was morning. Remember that in Genesis 1? Which means this, we got it mixed up. The day, the actual day, does not begin when you and I wake up. The day begins the night before when we're hitting our head in the pillow and, and, and when, we're, when we're not taking part in the day, when we're not doing anything productive, when we're not, when we're not um, contributing at all, the day's already begun, which means this. When we wake up six hours, eight hours later into the day that's already begun, God's already prepared something. God's already been at work. You're entering into something that God's already doing. That's what the Bible teaches us. That the day, it's like it's not up to us. It's not in our grasp. It's in God's. We enter into it. God's prepared something by His grace, and we just step into it. So God has given us an inescapable lesson. Look at the heavens. Look at the sky above. Look at the sun. Don't trudge through the day. There is greatness. There is potential. Don't be anxious about the day. Consumed by the future. Press pause. The world will keep on spinning, I promise. You and I are not that essential to our lives going okay. God's planned. God's capable. These are the things that the heavens teach us. But now, he also gives us his word. 
to be taught by and to be transformed by. So go to verses 7 through 9. And Don did a good job reading it. I'm not going to read the whole entire thing, but you'll notice as Don read it that there is this rhythm in verses 7 through 9, isn't there, where David makes a statement, a factual statement about the word. Then he tells us its effect. Statement, effect. Statement, effect. He says the word's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true, and the effect is this, it revives, it wisens, it rejoices, it enlightens. Here's what these verses attest to. This is, this is a, um, an unavoidable reality. Whatever you obsess over will deeply rearrange you. Whatever you obsess over, mentally settle on, it will have a deep and profound effect on you. And further, here's also what we can say based on this. The quality and the substance of the thing that you obsess over, that will determine the quality of person and the substance of character that is cultivated in you. So therefore, if that's true, if what, we, if what we focus on has an effect on us, and however, however uh, quality and substantial that thing is, is what we will become, if that is true, therefore, there is nothing that comes close to the Word of God and its potential to transform you in meaningful, profound ways. That's what, that's what David's teaching in, in, in Psalm chapter 19 about the Word. It transforms us. Now, I have a lot of conversations with you guys, and when we talk about the Word and reading the Bible, often what I hear in those conversations is, I try, I just don't get anything out of it. I try, and I just get bored. I, I try, and I just don't know what this means and how to interpret this. I just, I don't get anything out of it, and so it eventually sputters out. And so maybe some of you can't relate to, to what David's saying here, that is, all oh, this amazing transformation is at stake here. But I want to now give you a sequence, okay, for how to uh, um, participate in this transformation, how to get in on the grand transformation that the Word of God offers us. There's a sequence, okay, there's a way to go about reading your Bible that, that, that um, yields this for you, okay? And if you're here, if you're here and you're not a believer, if you're here and you're on the outside looking and you're curious, you're seeking, you're thinking to yourself, why would the pastor just pause in the middle of a sermon and teach the congregation how to do something as basic as reading the Bible? Why would he do that? And here's why. <laughs> because what I just said, whatever you obsess over, whatever your, is your concentration, that is going to affect you and change you and the Bible with its wisdom, with its vision for life, with its promises with everything contained in this, there is nothing that is going to bring about our flourishing quite like the Word. So yes, it is crucial now that we pause and think out loud about how do we get the most out of reading our Bible. So let's, let's walk through a few steps here. I have five and a half steps, all right? First, okay, listen, you prepare. If you want to get the most out of your Bible, reading it to prepare. And what I mean is this, it should be a ritual, it should be a ritual, okay? It should be something that is intentional and planned, right, that, that you prepare for. So, for instance, let me just tell you what I do, okay? It's a little bit bougie, but I like it, all right? It's, it works for me, and it motivates me to read my Bible. What I do is I 
uh, uh, measure out my coffee beans the night before. Okay, so I have the perfect measurement for my percolator the next morning. I dump them all in the grinder. I don't grind them yet because you know, I want them to be freshly ground in the morning, okay? But I have it all ready. So all I do when I get up at 6 a.m. is I press grind. And I dump it in the percolator, plug it in. Ten minutes later, I got my freshly brewed coffee with my Bible, with my dog on my lap, all right? But I know that's my rhythm. I know that's going to happen. And for me, that's like a ritual, for me, that, like, what's going to get me up at 6 a.m.? It's knowing that I, I pre- prepared the night before and have, a, have my fresh ground beans waiting for me, okay? I know it sounds silly. I know it sounds silly, but it's important that you treat your time in the Word as a ritual, that you make it special, that a fresh cup of coffee is associated with your enjoyment of the Word. So you prepare, okay, number one, prepare. Two, reflect. Self-reflect. And what I mean by this is check your motivations. Like, why are you in the Word? Why are you getting up at 6 a.m., for example? Why are you doing that? Is it to perform? Is it to achieve? Is it to try to impress God with how much you read your Bible, how frequently you read your Bible, how long you read the Bible, how much you get at? That's not the purpose the purpose of reading our Bibles is not to achieve. Stop trying to achieve. We don't, we can't impress, we don't impress God. Like That does not impress God. Stop trying to achieve instead fellowship. That's it. Instead of trying to achieve, just be. That's the point of reading your Bible, is just being with God in fellowship in a very dynamic way. Now, the thing you're going to have to accept, as I say that, if you're not trying to achieve and not, you're not worried about being productive, you're not worried about just how much you can read in that time, that's not what it's about. So you have to be okay with being inefficient. You have to be okay with the fact that reading your Bible is going to be a little messy. It's not going to be so clean and efficient and productive. That's okay. That's not the point. Check yourself. What's your motivations? If it's to, if it's to achieve, I'm telling you, it's not going to last long. If it's to achieve, the transformation is actually going to be the reverse. You're going to grow arrogant at how well and how much you read your Bible instead of fellowshipping with God. So, one, prepare. Two, reflect. Three, analyze. Three, analyze. Listen to the statement. Your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. You want to love Jesus. You want to have this rich interaction with him. You want to have this, this joyful walk with Jesus, don't you? Yes. Well, first you must engage your mind then in the word and study it, analyze it, be analytical. So you pay attention to, okay, what's the structure here? What's the logic here? What's the message here? Is there repetition, right? You do all of those things on an analytical level because your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. So listen, if you don't know what, what a word means, Google it. That's okay. If you need help, get a study Bible. If you need direction, get a, a guided study. That's fine. Whatever works for you as long as you're with him. So he analyzed. And let me sneak in a sub-point here, a sub-point here, because I know this is oftentimes, it's, th- this might be the hardest part of reading the Bible. Is I just don't know what this means, and this is so like, hard to understand. It's so complex. Here's a sub-point here. Trust the process. Just trust the process. Over time, you'll get it. 
Over time, you'll get better at it. Over time, it will become clearer and less confusing, but just trust the process. It's not going to come all together right away. It will eventually. A great, a great uh, uh, illustration I heard about reading the Bible and it coming together eventually is it's like, it's like when you have a new house and you get up in the middle of the night and walk through it to get a glass of water. You don't know your way around in the middle of the night. You don't know the place very well. It's, it's new. So what are you doing, right? You're walking around that place slowly. Right? Your hands are out so you don't stub your toe. Right? It's just a very slow inefficient pathway to the kitchen. But eventually, a few months later, once you know the terrain, once you know the layout of the house, you're just flying through there in the middle of the night, like unconsciously, eyes closed. It doesn't matter. Like, it's just second nature to you. That's like reading the Bible. At first, you're you're stubbing your toe. At first, it's not very efficient. At first, it doesn't really come together. At first, it's just very slow. But eventually, it comes together. Eventually, it becomes neat. Eventually, you start getting stuff out of it. Eventually, you're like reading it unconsciously. It's coming together, and you have recollection of everything else. It just all comes together, all in time. So trust the process. Don't let reading the Bible analytically intimidate you. Just trust the process. Fourth point here, okay? And this is the most important one. Everything I just said to you does not matter if we don't do this, this one, which is internalize. Internalize. I didn't say apply. This is a form of application, but I fear that when we read our Bibles, what we often do is we think, how can I apply this to my life? How can I do this? How does this change my behavior? Uh, what's the application? What's the, like we look for this quick mechanical uh, uh, takeaway for the, from the Bible. That's not the point. When we come to the Word and we analyze it, what we must do is internalize it before we ever try to apply it externally. And so David, in Psalm 42, he says this, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in the Lord. You see what, you see what David does there? He, he identifies, he detects an emotion within him, a sadness within him, and a, a despair in him, and then he commands his heart with the truth. That's what it looks like to internalize God's Word. See, emotions are not bad. God gave in each and every one of us emotions. Emotions do a very poor job of interpreting reality external to us. We get things confused and slanted with our emotions, but emotions are helpful in telling us where we are at. So if you're sad, if you're afraid, if you're anxious, You bring God's truth to bear on that. And you ask yourself, why am I feeling these things? Why are these things surfacing? Why why do I feel these things so prominently? Ask yourself why, like David. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And then you confront your soul deep down with God's truth. That's what it means to internalize God's truth. And listen, if we don't do this, then you only apply God's truth to behavior. And you only apply God's truth to your head and you get a big head. If we don't do this, you miss out on real Christian growth. Because when you internalize God's truth, that is where real transformation, real growth takes place. Remember the parable of the sower? What does Jesus say? The first three soils, the the seed of the word... It lands on those soils, but it remains on the surface. It does not penetrate down deep, and it does nothing. It's either taken away, or there's just quick and instantaneous growth, but does not last. It eventually just fizzles out. 
The seed of the word that brings about growth, that brings about real, real inside-out transformation, it penetrates deeply. It goes deep, deep down into our heart and confronts us at the most authentic level of who we are. So you have to be okay being inefficient. You cannot be hurried. You cannot focus on being productive. You have to just be with God. Let His truth confront you where you are at. And if you don't, like God's truth and theology and doctrine, things that are really good can end up becoming a really bad thing because that insecurity and that fear and that, that um, um, anxiety, that, that, that com- competitiveness in you that isn't being confronted with God's Word, it's just going to find a new outlet in your Bible reading and in your knowledge of God's Word, and in your doctrine, and in your your theology, and you will not actually transform. You will remain the same. So forth, internalize. Lastly, repeat. Repeat. Listen. You will be disappointed at the growth in your life after five months of doing this. You will be shocked, jaw dropping on the floor, surprised at the growth that takes place over five years. You won't even be able to fathom the kind of person you'll be in five years. So you have to take the long view. You're not striving for for perfection. You're not striving for results. You're striving for consistency. Consistency. Day in, day out not being hurried, internalizing God's word, and you're trusting the process and seeing and trusting God with, at some point in his timing, the growth will take place. And so, prepare, reflect, analyze, internalize, and repeat. That is how we get the most of our Bible reading. That is how the transformation that David depicts here in Psalm 19 happens in our own life. Now, maybe that's daunting, Maybe that sounds overwhelming to you, so let me go ahead and try to motivate you now from what David says here in Psalm 19. Let me motivate you. Go to verse 10. David says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So David talks here about fine gold and says that God's word and the transformation it brings is better than fine gold. What's the point of that? point of it is this, that God's word, the transformation it brings in our life, offers us a better form of security than even money can buy, that even money can provide. The promises here, the testimony to God's faithfulness here, the truth that is contained here is a better form of security than even fine gold can provide. He also says what? That it's better than the sweetest kind of honey. What's David trying to communicate with, with that imagery? What, what's he trying to say there? Well, think about honey. What is it? It's the most overpowering, rich thing that you can taste. It's, it overwhelms your sensory uh, um, um, features. I don't know what to say. It over, overwhelms, overwhelms your senses. So what, what's he trying to say there? What's he trying to say there? That the pleasure, that the pleasure that comes from time in the Word, the pleasure that comes from transformation in God's Word is better than anything your senses can ever be overwhelmed by or detect. The Grand Canyon, an amazing song, the best of desserts and fine dining, 
are just like a, a glimpse, a glimpse into the kind of pleasure and wow factor that can come by settling down in the Word and the transformation that comes through settling down in the Word. This offers a better security. This offers a better pleasure. And the David writes, verse 11, he says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. If you settle down in the word and allow it to transform you, David is saying that you will be protected, that you will be protected. And that's what he explains next. Look at verse 12. He says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. What does the transformation of God's word protect us from? Ourselves. Us. Our hidden faults, our hidden sin, our hidden motivation. See, every one of us here, even in our most altruistic moments, we don't even know it, but we're being commanded by fear and insecurity and the need for control and the need to please people and the need to be accepted by people. See, those things... They're in the most subterranean part of our hearts. And we don't know they're there, but they are commanding what we do. And David is saying here, you will be saved from that, protected from that self-deception the more you give yourself over to God's Word. The fact is that we, every one of us here, are self-deceived. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. No one. No one can say that. And so when left undetected, if we don't let God's Word shine the light into the deep recesses of our heart, those hidden motivations, those insidious things, they will eventually consume us and destroy us. But look at verse 13 too. It's not just the hidden things, it's the obvious things. Look at verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous, brazen, obvious sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. What David wishes for is the word to transform him so deeply that he never, ever, ever gets to a point where his conscience is seared and he just openly sins and is okay with it. But listen, there's a connection between these two things, the hidden motivations and the obvious sins, right? No one just arrives at a point in their life, where they're just okay with brazenly and openly sinning without caring. No one's conscience becomes seared all of a sudden. Listen, that is a gradual process where those things that are hidden in our hearts just take over and take over slowly but surely because they are left unchecked. Because we're not saying... Uh, why are your dad cast on my soul? Why so disturbed with him? You put your hope in the Lord. We're not applying God's truth to the deep part of our hearts, and so we, get, we become consumed, absolutely commanded by the deep things in our hearts. A, a movie that I've been recommending to a few people here, and you're going to laugh when I talk about it, is a movie called Nightmare Alley. It's a pretty new movie, and the plot is an amazing plot. It's a secular movie, but it's a totally biblical plot because the movie follows this nomad, okay, this nomad uh, who, who eventually makes his way to, to this carnival, this traveling carnival. And, uh, and the first night he's there, he sees one of the performances that's called The Geek. 
And the geek is this half man, half beast that like, you know, takes a bite out of a chicken in the movie. It's kind of weird. But the point is that this guy is like, this geek has lost his humanity. He's lost all his senses. He's just a beastly man now. He sees that the first night, stays with the carnival. He eventually uh, becomes like one of the psychics there. The, the, um, yeah, the psychics. And it's this, this con act that he does, that he learns. And Eventually, as the story goes, he leaves the traveling carnival, makes his way into the big city, takes his act with him, his psychic act with him, and it becomes a bigger production, even more deceptive. And eventually, he goes down this road of absolute just deception to the point eventually where he gets conned, where he gets manipulated, where he takes off. He's on the run from the law. He becomes a nomad again. And eventually, he finds his way back to a traveling carnival years later where the only position that's offered to him is the geek. I just gave away the whole entire movie, sorry. (laughs) But the point of the plot is when those motivations, when that self-deceit is left unchecked, we become something unhuman. We become something we never thought we'd become. The thing that once frightened us, the the thing that we thought we would never become, Slowly but surely, left unchecked, we become that very thing. Half man, half beast. The, the hidden self becomes the visible self. The hidden self becomes the true self. This is what happens when we don't let God's word in and transform us. Listen, it's not enough to just read and fill our heads. You have to let what's in our head trickle down into your hearts and deal with you and confront you. Confront those very deep down bottom of your heart things. So Psalm 19, what do the heavens teach us? What does the Word do to us? It transforms us. And in an ideal world, in an ideal world, the heavens and the Word would encourage and transform us so well, so profoundly that we're blameless. David says that over and over again. I'll be blameless. I'll be innocent. I'll be acceptable. In an ideal world, man, that is where we all would would land. That's the outcome for each and every one of us. But the honest truth is we are not in an ideal world but a fallen world. And just like I mentioned earlier, Proverbs 20 says, I have made my heart, who can say I've made my heart pure, that I am clean from my sin? We never arrive at perfection. Like the things that David is telling us can happen to us, we're not going to capture these things perfectly. No matter what, there's going to be hidden faults. No matter what, there's going to be obvious. And no matter what, we're not going to receive the, the, the lesson from the heavens completely. No matter what, we're not going to be transformed by the word perfectly. No matter what, we're not blameless, and we're not innocent, and we're not acceptable. That's what David longed for, but for us and for him, it will always be out of reach. And that's what makes verse 14 terrifying. Look at verse 14. David ends by saying, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Three titles here, O Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. Three titles he gives the Lord, Yahweh, rock, and redeemer. Those three titles, knowing that we're not perfect, that we're not blameless and innocent and acceptable, those three titles should terrify us because, O Lord, Yahweh, the origin of that name is when Moses asked who God really is, and one of the parts that that God discloses is, I will by no means clear the guilty. That's who Yahweh is. He's just. He is fair. He's not just going to enable us in our hidden sins so we become brazenly destructive to ourselves and others. God's not going to do that because he is just. 
So if he is Yahweh, we're in trouble if we're not blameless, if we're not innocent. He also says what? That he is the rock. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 says this. Listen to this. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, he is without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Well, if this is who God is, if he is just and upright and innocent, we're in trouble because we are not. And then Redeemer, that's his last how. He's Redeemer. Do you know what that means? That like the contrast is with us then? That we're enslaved. To redeem means to buy back, which means we are slaves. And we have sinned against who? An absolutely, infinitely, holy, good, perfect God. So therefore, the price to redeem us, it's an infinite, steep cost. We are in trouble (laughs) on the wrong side of God's justice and totally, infinitely lost in sin. Not blameless, not innocent, not acceptable. I want what David is, is articulating here, but I just don't think I measure up. It's troubling, these three titles, Yahweh, Rock, and Redeemer. But listen, as much as they are troubling... They're also comforting because Yahweh, Lord, you know what God also discloses to Moses? He says that a God merciful and gracious, here's what God says about his name. Here's who he is. He's a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's also who God is. And listen, if you were to arrange all of those uh, um, statements about himself that God makes in what's called a chiastic structure, which just means take the first statement with the last statement, pair them up. The second statement with the second to last statement, pair them up. What they eventually do is they serve to emphasize the very middle uh, alone statement, which is this, that he's abounding and steadfast to love. God's self-disclosure, his like exposition of his own name, it's all centered around the fact that he abounds in steadfast love. That's who he is to his very core. He has more than enough love to give. He has just the surplus and surge of love coming out of him. That is who he is. My rock That puts us in trouble, but also here's what Psalm 18 says, the very chapter before this one. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, my horn of salvation, my stronghold. We are, yes, the rock puts us in trouble, but the rock is also our refuge. The rock is also our our haven. And then my redeemer. You know what I think of when I hear redeemer? What we should think of? We should think of the book of Hosea. Remember the message of the book of Hosea where God calls a prophet named Hosea to marry a prostitute. And God knows that, and Hosea knows exactly what's going to happen. He's going to marry this prostitute, but she's going to go back and return back over and over again to her former life. And Hosea, her husband, is going to have to show up and purchase her and purchase her and redeem her and redeem her over and over again out of slavery. That's what God does for us. That's what he is willing to do for us. That's what he is pledged to do for us. Here's God's heart out of Hosea. Here's what God says about Israel. He says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. That's God's heart for us. So these three titles, yes, they're terrifying, but they're also strangely comforting because they invite us into this just God. 
to take refuge in Him. So the question is, how can the Lord, the rock and redeemer, all of which implies that we're in danger and enslaved, how can he, at the very same time, pledge to us his love, invite us to hide in him as our refuge, and pay our great sin debt? How can those things coexist? You cannot have the pledge and the refuge, and redemption, and pretend like God's justice is just gone and absent all of a sudden. The only way, listen, the only way for these things to coexist is that the Lord, the rock, the redeemer, is moved by his abounding love to absorb his own just wrath so that we don't have to, and then give his own infinitely valuable life so we could be set free paying our infinite sin debt with his own infinitely costly life, and then invite us to unite to him. See, in doing this, God remains holy. God remains just. He remains the rock and redeemer and refuge, all while offering us grace. See, the reason why David, in verse 14, he seems so contented, doesn't he? He says, he says, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. It's like he's at rest. It's like he's content. It's like he's at peace. How does David arrive there? It's because he knows that this rock and redeemer who puts him in danger is also the same one who will accept him. Said differently, David knows that a future descendant of his will step into the stream of human history and do everything to make David blameless and innocent and, and acceptable. David's trust is rewarded a millennia later when a Jewish carpenter is born of a virgin, lives the life we were supposed to, dies the death we were supposed to, so we could have what David hoped for. This descendant of David is the one who will make us reconciled. He will hold together both God's justice and God's grace. And that's why Romans 3 says this, listen, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just, remain holy, remain good, remain flawless and perfect, and yet justify us who have faith in Jesus. So be taught by the heavens. Be taught by the heavens. And be transformed by the word but don't put your confidence in the outcome of those things. Those things do not define you. Where does your confidence lie? What defines you? Not the outcome of those things, but Christ, our rock, our redeemer. And you know what's going to happen? As we release ourselves from the outcome, or release our, 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 our sense of self from how perfect we are, how blameless we are, the outcome of these things, you know what's going to happen? The declaration over us right now that you are righteous that you are accepted, that you are blameless, we become who we are. We grow into who we are as we are taught and as we are transformed. Let's pray. Father, give us 
a sensitivity to you, Lord, that we would be taught by what we see above us, that we would be instructed by your word and yield ourselves to you, where we pray that you would transform us, that you would bring about new things in us, God, that you make us more like your son. And Father, we thank you for Christ. Without him, we would not be blameless, we would not be acceptable. No matter how hard we strive, no matter how much we did, no matter how much Bible we had read, Lord, it wouldn't oppress you, it wouldn't matter, it wouldn't save us. We thank you for your son who saved us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.